Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows never again means abolish ice. Yes. Today we have Zoe and Kellen. We are going to be talking about Jewish solidarity with immigrants in the U.S. and the never again actions going on around the country at migrant camps. Uh, my mom's family are Eastern European Jews, so this topic is something very near to uh, my heart and upbringing. Yeah, um, I'm not Jewish, full disclosure, but it is really heartening to see Jewish comrades at the center of the movement for solidarity with asylum seekers and migrants in camps right now. Um, I don't know how much our non-Jewish listeners know about post-Holocaust Jewish activism in this country. Um, for our guests, I do. I'm a historian, so this is the kind of stuff I just live for. Um, <laughs> but I did want to, like, you know, let people who may be listening and aren't super familiar, you know, know about some of the background here. Like, American Jews have been really involved with freedom struggles in the United States since the second half of the 20th century in the aftermath of the Holocaust, even when those freedom struggles didn't seem like on the surface necessarily particularly relevant to their lives. Um, And the most obvious example of this kind of solidarity that I can think of comes from the civil rights movement. Um, Jewish kids were way disproportionately represented in um, a lot of actions in the Deep South, like the Freedom Summer in 1964. The same can be said of Jewish lawyers who were, um, you know, disproportionately they agreed to represent black clients and take civil rights cases in the South where other white or, you know, like white with the scare quotes lawyers um, wouldn't. And most famously, the KKK murdered black activist James Cheney, along with two Jewish activists, Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman, um, outside Philadelphia, Mississippi, which, fun fact, is where Reagan announced his presidential campaign, um, one of uh, our history's loudest dog whistles. There's literally nothing in Philadelphia, Mississippi, except for the memory of those murders. Um, anyway, even outside those you know, the the horrific killings of those three men. Um, Jewish institutions in the South were also targets for the Klan, both out of plain old anti-Semitism and as retribution for solidarity with the Black freedom struggle. Um, obviously, Jewish people in America are not monolithic. There are strong strains of conservatism in some quarters. What's up, APAC? But there's also an incredible history of this kind of solidarity work that we're going to talk about today. And I just I think it is so awesome that our guests are part of that larger tradition. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up, first of all, because I told Kellen I wanted some of her historical brilliance on today's episode. But also (laughs) that's it. I'm um, done. I'm not speaking again. (laughs) my grandmother was super interested in the struggles of indigenous folks in the u.s and like studied it a lot and was very like just gung-ho about like learning about the culture and felt this strong connection like between um native americans and jews which i just think is like a really interesting thing that i kind of grew up understanding like the connection of solidarity across different marginalized identities which we'll talk about more after we introduce our guests so Without further ado, we have two guests with us today who are both involved in the Never Again Actions. Welcome to Julia and Jacqueline. Hey, welcome. Hi. 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 Thank you you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, do you each want to introduce yourselves a little before we get more into it? My name is Julia Davidovitz. I'm a preschool teacher from Boston. I'm 26 years old. And I got involved with Never Again Action because I've been feeling really sick over the atrocities 
occurring at the border and around the country at the hands of this government and the institutions it supports. And I'm really excited to be here talking to you all. Yeah, my name is Jacqueline Friedman. I am a 47 year old. What am I? I (laughs) identify myself as an itinerant feminist troublemaker. Um, Mostly I write and agitate around transforming the sexual culture and doing anti-rape work. Um, But, you know, the ties between sexual violence and the mass abuses that are happening at the border are not hard to make. Um, And I also just know a concentration camp when I see one. So uh, when I had the opportunity to get arrested in a never again action in Boston, I jumped at it and um, it's just been an amazing organization to be part of. And I'm just so proud of Jews right now. Yeah, I think so. This is like a a segue um, to a question I wanted to ask, which is, um, I know at least one of y'all was at an action literally today. Um, can you tell us what you've been up to? What, first of all, even what Never Again is and um, what kind of actions you've been participating in? Yeah, so this is Julia. I was at the action today. So if my words are a little scrambly, because <laughs> I've been in the 95 degree heat for six hours. Oof. But um, yeah, the action today was really powerful. We marched from the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to the ICE headquarters, also in D.C., and we had about 80 people engaging in civil disobedience and risking arrests. So in the end, about 11 people got arrested for sitting in the lobby of the ICE headquarters, and a bunch of other people were blocking the entrances, the doors, the the roads, and we had a about a two-hour standoff with the cops and yeah it was a really powerful action wow it was amazing i was watching the whole thing on the live stream and i was just like it was so epic i just am so proud of you all and grateful to you oh wow that's awesome yeah Yeah, the live stream is great it's like you can you can be there even remotely (laughs) yeah i was watching the live stream too and i was like is julia gonna get arrested and you know not be able to record tonight? <laughs> <laughs> That's the important question. That's what I was really wondering. No, but yeah. yeah, I was watching the live stream as well and like tearing up. Yeah, what about what about you, Jacqueline? Uh, I was not able to make it to DC today, so I was helping out the communications team all throughout the day, making sure the message got amplified and get out on social media um, through... Uh, I hate the word influencers, but we were, you know, trying to work with folks who have large platforms to make sure that everyone knew what was going on. Uh, so I was following very closely and cheering everybody on from from Boston. Um, my experience was getting arrested at the Boston Action, which was the second. So for folks who are less familiar, Never Again is, I don't know if it's even considering itself an organization yet. It, mm. it sort of sprung up a few weeks ago. It's a bunch of progressive Jews who decided that enough was enough and never again really is now. And that meant we needed to really do something. Uh, And the first action was in Elizabeth, New Jersey at an ICE detention facility where 36 Jews were arrested and and a few hundred other protested. And then the next action after that was Boston, which is the one where I participated in the civil disobedience. Um, And again, it was so incredibly powerful, just linking arms with everybody and physically shutting down ICE, even for a small amount of time just saying like 
this that business as usual cannot stand and that we're going to make dealing with us the cost like if you're if you're going to try to keep doing this we're going to use our bodies to make the cost of doing this too high it was incredibly powerful uh and especially incredibly powerful to take that stand with fellow jews who um you know this this definitely for i i don't want to speak for every jew as you mentioned jews are are not homogenous but um for a lot of us, it really does very viscerally call up Holocaust, right? And then many genocides that we've been targeted with um, and and all of the ways that we learned. I learned growing up, you know, my elders said to me over and over again, you know, never again, never again. And and I've written about this a couple of times, but, you know, when I was a kid and I they made us watch Shoah and they would talk, I, you know, I heard this so many times that I literally got to a point where I was like, I get it. Never again. Like, surely humanity understands the Holocaust was bad. Like, why do we have to drill this home? And uh, and I understand now. Uh, and that, and I just feel like I'm doing what I wish more people had done in the Weimar Republic. Yeah. yeah, I remember like when I was a kid and my mom first told me that like this person that we knew was a Holocaust denier. And I was like, what do you mean a Holocaust? Did, like, how do people deny that it happened? It like blatantly happened. Right, exactly. And just like <laughs> not being able to just like, no, but everyone knows it happened, right? <laughs> but you both kind of mentioned this in your intros, but how did you, because as you said, this only started like pretty recently um, from what I've read, it was like via a Facebook post. So how did you both hear of it and like start getting involved in going to these actions? This is Jacqueline. I literally heard about it on social media. I'm pretty sure it was Facebook, but I don't even remember. I it just it came across my my desk in some way, and it was like, if you're interested, sign up here and tell us what city you live in, and we'll let you know what's going on. And I did that, and like a day later, I was sort of staring at a Google Doc that was like, here's when the action is, here are the different roles that are available, and like one of them was civil disobedience, and I kind of stared at it for a minute and thought, well, the only reasons I can think not to do civil disobedience are that it sounds time consuming and terrifying and <sighs> neither of those seem like adequate reasons right now. And so I like clicked the little box. Uh, and so I went to a training, we had like a long training on how to do nonviolent direct action to together. And we, then we had a legal training and you know, all of that. So, um, it really was as straightforward as seeing it come over my social media. Wow. Yeah, this is Julia. Um, similar situation here. I saw it on social media. I filled out a Google Doc. I went to a planning meeting, and the action that I ended up going to was the first action in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And, yeah, it was really powerful. And I felt like we were able to make a difference, at least to shut down ICE for – we were at a detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and – the employees were not able to get in or out. And it just seemed like, wow, this is really making them realize that we're not going to allow to continue conducting business. And I think that that's a tangible impact that, that we've been making. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask about that. Um, and I think I think you're sort of starting to get at a question that I had too, which was, you know, if you're going to explain to a skeptical listener, you know, what you're seeking to accomplish with the never again actions. Um, what would that be? And it sounds like, you know, one, one tangible goal is just shutting down the functioning of, um, 
one cog in the ice machine for as long as you can in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Julia. Oh, um, yeah, just that I think it's, um, yeah, it's a ripple effect because we're, we're shutting down the institution where they're working at. And then also I think for some of them, some of the cops that I've encountered and some of the ICE employees that I've encountered, this is making them realize that they, um, they are doing this work, which is um, making people's lives worse. I, I don't know that today at, at the action in DC, one protester shouted at an ICE employee, like Gestapo or something like that. And he was like, no, I'm just doing my job. Oof. Like these, these people don't. Yeah. It's like, they think that this is just, a regular job and they clock in and clock out and they don't realize that, or I can't speak for all of them, but some of them seem to not realize the impact that this is having on vulnerable communities and, and immigrants who are in detention and being deported as we speak. So it's definitely, um, definitely a, a mind fuck. In a way. Yeah. I, I imagine also... even, sure, go ahead. You... Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I imagine that even if you can't, convince somebody that they're part of the Gestapo it's probably an uncomfortable reality to try to grapple with at the very least you can make their job unpleasant enough that they don't want to do it anymore or or like plant that seed right like Mm. nobody changes no one's going to change their mind right in front of a protest and be like (laughs) oh I realize I am the Gestapo but you might wedge that in the back of their brain and two months later they might quit and we won't know but Mm. it's it's about shocking people awake whether they're people who work for ice or collaborate with ice you know like amazon or wayfair you know those folks or you know folks who should be standing up and and protesting more you know i've definitely heard from people in my life and people who follow me on social media that i've inspired them to take more action and to sort of take it more seriously and uh that was part of what i was hoping to do too you know i watched my friend the rabbi danya rudenberg get arrested protesting ice last summer and it really like it startled me not like I wasn't anti-ice already but it it woke me up a little like oh yeah yeah, this is really serious and if she can do that I can do that and and I think part of why I was ready to click that little box on the google form Mm -hmm. is that I'd already seen her do it and so I feel like you know part of what I'm hoping is that taking dramatic action like this will also send a signal to folks who maybe agree with us in principle, but feel helpless or feel numb and we'll sort of shake them a little bit and get them involved as well. That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. And I want to say, like, I really understand that numb feeling. Like we all have to numb out some of the horrible shit that's happening some of the time where Mm -hmm. we couldn't get through our days. But, um, but this is genuinely a mass atrocity and we can't, we can feel that numbness. Sometimes we can't give into it. Um, we have to work against it. And and actually, one of the side effects of taking this action that I didn't anticipate was that I'm less numb. I thought I would feel more satisfied, like more like, oh, I've done something now. So, I f- you know, mm. I'd, I'd feel calmer after I did it. And I did for like a day or two. But actually, I think the, the big effect of, of taking that action is it sort of stripped off a le- another layer of numbness. And I'm like way more aware of what's going on and feel way more urgent about it. That's great. Yeah. I wanted to slightly zoom out, I guess, and talk about like the connections between Judaism, both in terms of 
culture and like what Kellen mentioned in the beginning, but also in terms of like Jewish texts and, you know, teachings um, and like linking that to activism. How do you both see those connections? Yeah, so I grew up in a reform Jewish synagogue outside of Boston. I I went to um, Sunday school, Hebrew school, like bat mitzvah classes, confirmation classes, whatever. I ended up spending a lot of time there um, until I was 18, like structured time. And one of the things that I remember most clearly is this principle of tikkun olam, repairing the world. And that's something that Jews hold is really important and yeah, it's one of the most coherent principles that, that stuck with me. And I think it's a really important way of putting your Jewish values into action to, to act out when, when atrocities are occurring. I also grew up in a Reformed temple. As luck would have it, just sort of geographic fate, I grew up in a temple that was led by Rabbi Sally Prezand, who's the first woman ordained in the modern era. Um, it was a total trailblazer and was my first feminist role model, even though I didn't know the word feminism. It was just normal in our temple. And uh, and remember, I'm 47. I'm old. <laughs> it, was not, it was not normal back then, but it was growing up. So I grew up in a pretty social justice Judaism, and I came up in what was then called Jifty, but is now, I guess, called Nifty Gur, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but in the in the reform youth movement. And... Um, which also had a huge focus on social justice. So my entire, you know, career of social justice really for me comes from that Jewish place of tikkun olam. And in, in addition to that, uh, this one saying uh, from Rabbi Tarfon in the Pirkei Vote, which says, uh, it is not yours to complete the work and neither is it yours to desist from it. Mm-hmm. And so when I feel really overwhelmed at how much of the world needs repair and how big a job, how big a repair job is in front of us. Um, That's been my touchstone through my whole social justice, you know, activism career, which is, okay, what is the thing that I can do? What, what is the thing that I can do? Um, And that's sort of what keeps me grounded. And again, not sort of getting paralyzed by overwhelm. Yeah, I also grew up going to a reform synagogue. um, And part of the reason, similar to what you said, was that there were uh, female rabbis there, which was really important to my mom because she had been raised going to a much more conservative synagogue. Um, And she, like, likes to tell this anecdote um, about how, I forget the rabbi's name, this, like, old male rabbi once said, like, a woman belongs on the bima like uh, an orange belongs on the Seder plate. And mm-hmm. so my mom still always puts an orange on our Seder plate. And that's her like uh, little, you know, yes. Jewish feminism. It's very sweet. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And then like, she really wanted to go to a synagogue where there were women rabbis also. Yeah. I, so to sort of build on that, um, obviously everybody that I'm talking with here is part of the reform <laughs> tradition. Um, I, as I mentioned, I'm not Jewish. I have um, some like, cursory knowledge of um, the sort of various different um, communities um, and sort of religious differences within Judaism in the same way that being a heretic in general, I vaguely understand the difference between various Protestant sects. Um, Can you, do you guys think that being part of the reform community has made a difference in how you approach social justice? I don't, it's hard to know without having anything 
to compare it to. Mm. I mean, probably, but um, I didn't have a different experience. So I feel like that's hard for me to say. Yeah, I know that there are all different um, kinds of Judaism represented in Never Again Action. Specifically, I I know conservative Jews and Orthodox Jews who have all taken it upon themselves to do this activism. So I think while the reform tradition of Judaism is definitely allows for more liberal rhetoric, I think that people are getting radicalized for lack of a better word in Mm. in every sect of Judaism yeah I also want to clarify that um saying conservative Jewish like this sect of Judaism (laughs) for people that don't know doesn't necessarily mean like conservative politics the way we think of it in the U.S. it's Mm -hmm. just the (laughs) the name of a sect of Judaism um which is like more strict with a lot of the rules um and more kind of like traditional, but that doesn't necessarily denote their politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, reform is kind of a newer, looser one. And the most hippie one, the Reconstructionist sect, which is what my mom wanted us to go to, but it wasn't (laughs) a nearby synagogue. But we would occasionally go to this one that was like a half hour away, and it was like kind of like a Jewish drum circle. That's really funny. I know you had a yeah. more serious thing you wanted to talk about, though, as we <laughs> transition away yeah. from drum circle conversation. Yeah, I guess going in a much more somber direction, I wanted to talk about the camps, which I'm not particularly interested in the argument over, like, whether or not they're concentration camps. Oh, my uh, God, yeah. Yeah, especially because Jews are used all the time as this, like, tool for political divide, whether it be... Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comments about calling them concentration camps or when Ilhan Omar uh, made comments about Palestine and then the right and both parties use it to be like, no, we're the ones that care about the Jews. I mean, yeah, Pence did this on Sunday. He was like, how dare you invoke the Holocaust in comparison (laughs) to the camps? Yeah. Um, (sighs) And then I called him a literal motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) He is. Yeah, he calls his wife mother. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it didn't change anything, but it felt good in the moment. Yeah, yeah. A couple years ago, I was traveling in Poland by myself and went on a tour of Auschwitz, um, which I don't know if either of you have been to any of the camps, but what what an experience! Um, And like, I definitely emotionally prepared myself for like this is going to be really hard, but it's something that like I feel really connected to doing. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's nice to just have a good sob in public by yourself. Um, but while I was there, there were so many tourists that, oh my one, very clearly not Jewish, which is okay. They were like very disrespectful, taking a lot of photos and selfies in front mm-hmm. of everything. I got like elbowed in the head mm-hmm. while looking at this like case of like confiscated jewelry by these people just like trying to take a selfie. And I was just like... What is wrong with you? I had an experience much like that. I visited Dachau when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And this was before selfies or cell phones. But um, 
and you had to, I don't know if Auschwitz is the same way, but Dachau, you can only go through it one way. Like you have to go through the whole museum first that tells a story of what happened there. And then you can only walk through the grounds in a particular order and the ovens are the very last thing. So you've seen literally all of it. And I got to the end and there was this American couple and one was saying to the other standing in front of the oven, smile. And I, I literally like had, that was the first moment where I was like, oh, this is why all the adults in my life keep telling, saying never again, because Mm -hmm. clearly some people can walk through this entire thing and not understand why that's inappropriate. Um, So I'm sure it's even worse in the cell phone era. Yeah. Yeah. It was similar. It was like you had to be on a tour and they took you to like specific um, rooms and places and stuff. Um, And yeah, it just really, you know, shows like that people don't understand the severity of what happened as people are not understanding the severity of what's happening now in the U.S. Um, so how do you talk to people if they're not understanding how serious this is or like why you're, you know, dedicated to being a part of stopping it happening now? My experience has mostly been with folks who are like, yes, we understand that it's really serious, but can you see that your language and your rhetoric is alienating because, you know, it's not as bad as the Holocaust. So I I think to that, just pointing, yeah, because as as you said earlier, I'm not also interested in the semantic comparisons and, and the minuscule, like, oh, well, the conditions are in this way, in this way. But yeah, I think just pointing to the detention of of human beings who are just seeking freedom and dignity in this country that is supposed to offer that. Um, I would hope that would be enough for people who are concerned about it not being serious enough to warrant this comparison. I've been hearing a lot in the last couple of weeks since I took the action in Boston um, from people who want to yell at me about how if immigrants don't want to be treated in this way, they shouldn't have broken the law. And I and one of the things that I think is so important to point out, and that I've been pointing out till I'm blue in the face, is that the law, the asylum seekers obviously have not broken any laws, and obviously the children have not broken any laws. But even for folks who have broken a law, the law that they've broken is a federal misdemeanor, right? It's a civil infraction. It is not, in fact, a criminal infraction. It is the same level of infraction in the federal misdemeanor code as running a stop sign at the Pentagon. And so I I will say to them, like, if you think that if you run a stop sign in the Pentagon with your kid in the car, that we should take the two of you and throw you in separate concentration camps because you broke the law, then that's, you know, I'm I'm, I'm interested in hearing that. But unless that's what you want to argue, like, please shut up. Um, (laughs) People really get this black and white thinking about breaking the law, making you a criminal. Uh, and in fact, it's not even the criminal code, right? It's a civil code. And and it literally is like running a stop sign at the Pentagon is the level of offense that it is in the federal books. And so there's just this profound desire to, and it, you know, the, I think one of the things we're up against that's tough is that there's a really deeply encoded human impulse to break people up into us and them, right? To know what tribe is yours and what tribe is against you. And the folks who are 
in power and who are profiting off of, because a lot of this is also about unregulated capitalism, right? Who are profiting off of this disarray, who are profiting off the labor of undocumented immigrants and the fear of immigrants that even who maybe have legal status in the U.S. but are still afraid. Um, They want us to think that the immigrants are the enemy and to fight them because it distracts us from seeing who's actually making life miserable for all of us. Um, and so we have to, all of, I, I really have so much empathy. All of us are encoded. It's part of the human condition with a, with an impulse to sort people into like, are they in my group or are they not in my group? Um, and there, we just have to realize that we're being played if we let ourselves become anti-immigrant. We're being played by the people who are actually making life miserable, both for us and for those immigrants. I mean, I'm here making a false binary between us and immigrants because I am not one. But of course, people listening may well be. And so I want to acknowledge that, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good point, too, that um, this is a hugely profitable industry, Um that that putting people in cages is making a ton of money um, for people who are already wealthy and already running our economy um, and are already profiting off human misery, like you said. Um, and to, to sort of follow up on something you said earlier too, Jacqueline, you, you mentioned the um, connections between anti-sexual violence activism and organizing against the concentration camps on the border. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Sure. It's miserable, but I will. (laughs) This is like the downer conversation. Um, it's my specialty. Yeah. Um, Well, the, uh, you know, an episode about ice was never, it's never going to be super happy. It was not going to be cheerful. Um, so I, I see it on two levels. One is the literal level, which that we see, uh, wide variety of folks who are running these camps and other shelters for migrants um, or foster care programs into which these children have been kidnapped uh, have been accused of sexual abuse. Like there's rampant sexual abuse in the system because when you have a system where you're housing people that are literally the people who are housing them don't see them as human, you're going to have all kinds of abuse and some of that abuse is sexual. So you, if you support these camps, you're supporting sexual abuse like period full stop but on a deeper and broader level you know this is just about simple bodily autonomy right that that the reason that i think sexual liberation is a human right is because we all have the right we all have the inherent human right to be sovereign over our bodies um and that right is being violated en masse in our name with our tax tax dollars uh and so that also seems like a profound connection to me yeah no for sure and and for you julia you mentioned you're um a a preschool teacher is part of like what's motivated you to get into this the particular horrors that children are facing is that like at all part of your story and in this connection so i do think that being a preschool teacher and, and working with young children has affected the way that I think about trauma and how children are being traumatized in these camps. I've seen the way that profound trauma can affect little kids and it's really sad to behold. And that stays with children for the rest of their lives. I, I know that my grandfather who was imprisoned in the Minsk 
ghetto in Belarus. Um, he's he's been changed by it, you know. He he's he, yeah in in numerous irreparable ways, and it's me so depressed to to think of the little kids in these and and how they're going to carry this with them all their lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, I was thinking about that um, too earlier when I was like thinking about this episode and just like the intergenerational trauma that obviously we all understand or sorry, Kellen, (laughs) that those of us speaking from um, a Jewish background understand of like, obviously we were not alive when the Holocaust happened, but like we feel these traumas that happened like in our families and it still feels really like rough and raw um, to even talk about and then to like see these photos of camps happening now and like similar things happening now. So, yeah, it makes me yeah. so ill. Yeah. And and I have to say, I really think that is, well, I don't want to be too broad, but my none of my immediate family was in the Holocaust, they all got out before then. You know, my some of my family's from Russia and fled during the pogroms, but my family was in the U.S. by the time the Holocaust happened, both sides. Uh, but I still feel it viscerally. Uh, yeah. So I can only imagine what it feels like for someone who's grown up having this be your literally family history. This feels like my family history in the sense of my family of Jews, um, and that that my elders did, I think, a great job of making sure I understood this as my own story. Um, But it's not. And so I can only imagine how much more intense it is if it is. Yeah. Yeah, my family also left before, like, because obviously, and as we're seeing now, like, it builds up to being a bigger thing. The, The first stages of, like, persecution aren't necessarily, or aren't, like, these huge things. But as it was starting to be, like, okay, Jews aren't welcome in a lot of places, like, this is getting uncomfortable, et cetera. Um, they were like, all right, we're going to get out of here. Um, and luckily, we're able to do that, which obviously so many people were not able to do. But, yeah, it just still feels like this, like, intense history as, like, a group of people. And I, what you're describing, Zoe, is still very much not that you need me to tell you this but (laughs) still very much part of of even if it doesn't escalate to you know work and then killing camps um it's still very much part of a program of ethnic cleansing um making a place essentially unlivable for members of a group that you want to rid yourself of um and that i think is one of the ways that what's happening at the border is intimately connected with, you know, I, I hate talking about Trump. I hate talking about the stuff that he says because it's it's so blatantly um, ridiculous at all times. But, um, you know, this past week when he made a comment mm-hmm. about how, um, you know, reps Tlaib and, and AOC and Ilhan Omar and um, Presley, you know, need to go back where they came from, um, it is a white nationalist vision of the United States that is seeking on a lot of different fronts to make people who don't fit in to sort of that version of the U.S. Um, deeply uncomfortable. And uh, I think that, you know, the it kind of also goes back to what y'all were talking about with, like, is it 
you know, the, d- the debate about whether these are concentration camps. First of all, it seems like yes, absolutely. But secondly, even that debate isn't useful because no matter what, they're still part of this larger program. Yeah, and part of that program is Trump's rhetoric, and part of that program is threatening mass ice raids that for sure didn't materialize as of the time we're recording this but even if they don't that's not necessarily the point because it's still terrorizing in enormous swaths of the population um and the terror is the point yeah so they they almost don't need to do the actual raids uh save money right you can get the terror done more efficiently just with the rhetoric uh so yeah it's all of a piece yeah, definitely. I I'm really, can I just say, yeah. I'm really, I'm more hopeful after these two weeks of never again action than I have been in a long time. Not because anything has materially changed, because it hasn't. And that's hard sometimes, right? Like, you know, coming out of an intense activism experience like that, and then like a couple of days later being like, well, nothing fucking changed, right? Um, but, But feeling like, watching it snowball and watching people's response to it. um, I just have to continue to have hope. I think very often these days about hope, not as an emotion because I don't feel super hopeful, uh, you know, on a day to day basis. (laughs) But I think about, I don't know how many of you read Rebecca Solnit's little book, hope in the dark. uh, But if not, I highly recommend it. And in it, you know, the central idea is basically that hope doesn't have to be a feeling, right? Hope can be a decision. That if you act as though everything is hopeless, you ratify the hopelessness of things. You make change less possible. But if you act as though change is possible, then you make it more realistic that maybe change is possible through your actions. And so I just see that philosophy in action so much in this movement that sprung up through Never Again, um, I guess sprung up is the wrong word. It's been very painstakingly organized by a lot of people's blood, sweat, and tears. But, um, and I, that makes me feel hopeful to be in community with so many people who are making that same decision to say, like, we don't know exactly, like, how this change happens, but we're going to act as though it's possible. And the more people who do that, the more change actually becomes possible. I think that's a, a really valuable point for the left even more broadly that it's it is so easy to feel um, disheartened and um, impotent and powerless, and that's you know that's exactly what they want. They're banking on that, um, and you can't you can't come from a place of power. You can't create more power um, if you're resigned to powerlessness. Um, and to speak to sort of what you were talking about earlier, where seeing others act in profoundly brave ways can inspire, you know, more people to do the same thing. I think that that's absolutely an effect that the actions that y'all have been part of um, are having, that people um, are realizing that this, not just that this isn't a distant problem, you know, people who may not have a material connection or at least don't feel like they have a material connection to what's happening at ICE detention centers or at the border um, are both realizing that they do have connections and also that there is something within their power that they can do to, you know, one, one, you know, participating in one action isn't necessarily going to put a halt to the entire, uh, you know, deportation machine, but it, it, 
it can be a really important step in reclaiming our power. Yes. Yeah. And the motorcycle on the street agrees also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's been really amazing to see thousands of Jews and allies and immigrants from around the country stand up for ourselves and our friends and our neighbors and say, we're not going to let this happen. And we're not going to let this happen without a fight. And it, it seems like the movement is catching on and, and more groups who either identify with being a vulnerable group who's been oppressed by a regime like this or people who have solidarity just from seeing the atrocities that are occurring. I think people are gaining more power and there's more traction in this movement. Yeah, I was going to ask what advice you would give to folks who want to get involved with this, whether or not they may be fellow Jews. Do it! (laughs) Do it. There's a campaign call happening soon. I don't know if it's tonight. You can go to Never Again. It's tomorrow. You can go to Never Again. It will have happened, however. Sorry, everybody. Oh, right, right, right. And and there are more ways to get involved. Also, there's always forms to fill out on the website, neveragainaction.com. You can contact me or another organizer. We're pretty easy to contact, I think, via email and Twitter. And I just want to say really explicitly, there are so many different roles to fill, even in a civil disobedience action where all the press tends to focus on the people getting arrested. There's a million roles that you don't see. There's the police liaison and the medics and the marshals and the song leaders and the people who do the art build and the tactical leads. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a million other people, as well as the, the people who just come to the the march and march in support. And um. And so I, I don't want people to feel like it's a binary choice, like you're either willing to get arrested or don't show up. Uh, I don't want people to feel like it's intimidating. We need everybody's time and talent, no matter what that is and what shape it takes. So there's a role for you. And that's just one kind of action, right? I'm sure there's going to be other things. The other one I want to mention is that Never Again has been organizing in tandem with uh, Movimento Cosecha. I don't know if I said that right. My Spanish is terrible. Uh, but Cosecha is pretty close to right, uh, which is an immigrant-led immigrant rights organization that's doing some fantastic uh, campaigns. One about making sure that undocumented immigrants in your community don't get arrested for driving without a driver's license, which they are prohibited from obtaining, which is a mean, nasty catch-22. And so you can help make it safer for undocumented folks in your community to drive if you get involved with their campaign. And there's another campaign they're running uh, that focuses on uh, not supporting businesses who do business with ICE. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are also ways to plug in directly with Cosecha. That's great. Yeah, and also Cosecha just unrolled a really amazing plan called the Dignity Plan 2020 that is a framework for how policy can change to welcome all immigrants. And yeah, it's really inspiring. They have a website for it and their goal is to, on day one of the new administration to legalize all undocumented immigrants and 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. Very powerful plan. Great. Is there anything else y'all, you know, would want to let our listeners know or anything that we didn't cover that you think, you know, is important for people to hear about? Just don't do nothing. Mm. 
Like, that's it. Just find a thing that you can do and do that thing and break through the overwhelm in that way. That's the one thing I would say is like everyone listening to this, if you feel moved, if you feel inspired, every time I've heard someone say, oh, the actions you all are doing are so inspiring. I'm like, well, what is it inspiring to do, for you to do? Like I, <laughs> and I want to challenge everybody listening to ask yourself that question. And your answers are going to be real different. And that's fine. I can't stress enough. We need everybody's different kinds of contributions, but don't do nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you feel like you don't have the privilege or the ability to come to an action, there are so many remote roles that folks can hold and also so many amazing organizations that people can donate to bail funds for immigrants and, and legal support for immigrants. They're, they're all important. It's all making a difference. Absolutely. Well, Zoe, I think that's a good way to close out. Like we said, yeah, I don't definitely. know that like, you know, a, an episode about, ice and de- detainment and all that was going to be super uplifting but <laughs> I, I actually think this is like a pretty uplifting way to end it like a call to action is really really important and I want to thank y'all both for coming on and and like g- giving our listeners that call well thank you so much for having me yeah, yeah thank, you. thank you so much absolutely this is our pleasure yeah thanks for coming on okay well Oof. that was our our episode for today um a nice heavy topic yeah no i mean they were they're they're so uh, what a great set of guests but yeah um i'm feeling both inspired and like very heavy you know which is appropriate that's kind of i feel like if you don't feel that way after this kind of stuff or just like in your life right now in general i we can't i can't relate to you yeah yeah, it's like always bittersweet because I'm like, the guests were amazing. So glad we got to meet them and talk to them. But wow, am I now depressed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, but um, again, a real, I'm so glad we ended that with a call to action. Like, you know. Yeah, I liked it, her saying, don't, just don't do nothing. I was like, okay, I can do that. I can do not nothing starting by recording this podcast Uh, (laughs) it's praxis it's not (laughs) it's fine um yeah I also I really loved what what um Jacqueline said I'm not gonna get the quote right but that like it's you know it's not you it's not on you to like fix all the ills of the world but it is on you to try whatever exactly that was that was yeah that was really nice and i'm gonna hold on to yeah. that i'm gonna re-listen so i can get it right and then i'm gonna <laughs> hold on to it yeah they were really inspiring so as always if you liked this interview or you know appreciated it for what it is you can rate review and subscribe on itunes you can tell people that we're intelligent but depressing if you want <laughs> Um, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. You can also find us on Facebook. Um, and you can give us money on Patreon, which, by the way, I've had food poisoning for the past two days and still did this episode. So honestly, would like to get paid. Thank you. Yep. 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 She <laughs> it. Um, yeah. And is there anything else? No, I think that about does it. Um, I just have to tell everyone that I love Kellen now. Yes. I love you, Zoe. Hey, thank you to our, our goyish uh, ally on this episode. 
Is that me? Yeah, Goy is like just a non-Jew. Ah, I mean, I, I kind of knew that. I just wanted to make sure I was... It's not like a bad term. It just means you're not Jewish. It's okay. I I didn't... Never mind. We don't need to get into just the completely sheltered upbringing that I had. But I, I like, did not know a Jewish person until I was in, like, sixth grade. So, um... Well, thank you so That's much. Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, <laughs> thank you and good night. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for your uh, support and understanding <laughs> as an adult, Kellen, and your historical understanding. I am the hero of this episode, yes. Glad we found a way to make it about me. Um, all right, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Zoe, I love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch.